I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Book Pod. I'm delighted that my guest this week is Sarah Krasenstein, Melbourne author, writer, academic, and she has written the latest quarterly essay, Not Waving, Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. It's a terrific read. It's a very moving read and at times quite provocative. And I must say, I felt quite emotional at different times reading her essay, but I really urge everyone to have a read. We recorded this episode a few weeks ago, just at the start of the federal election. So there are a few references to the six weeks ahead. And also the sound quality is not great from Sarah's end. We have tried to fix this, been a little unsuccessful, but we thought this conversation so important, we wanted to share it with you. Thanks, everybody, and enjoy the episode. Mental illness, it's difficult terrain to cover, Sarah, but congratulations on writing such a compelling and provocative piece, and welcome to the book pod. Thanks so much for having me, and Cora, I'm very happy to be here. Lovely to have you here. Many of you will know Sarah's name because you would have read her 2018 bestseller and her first book, The Trauma Cleaner, One Woman's Extraordinary Life in Death, Decay and Disaster, an amazing non-fiction work that earned Sarah a cabinet full of literary trophies, including the Victorian Prize for Literature in 2018, the Victorian Premier's Prize for Nonfiction, and the Australian Book Industry Award for General Nonfiction. The Trauma Cleaner was also the joint winner of the Douglas Stewart Prize for Nonfiction in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards in 2019. And even now, four years after its release, the book continues to be read and read and passed along. Last year, Sarah's second book, The Believer, Encounters with Love, Death and Faith, arrived in bookstores. To our listeners, I must say, Sarah, that some of today's discussion may cause anguish and so I would just I would just leave you all with this thought. If you feel you need assistance, please remember beyondblue.org.au has a list of national helplines and websites on its home page. Sarah, 
Let's start with the grim conclusion of your essay, which is from my take-home of that. You argue that Australia's mental health system was under severe stress prior to March 2020, and now, after two years of lockdowns and pandemic-associated anxieties, our community and our governments need to rethink this broken system, and we need to rethink it quickly, and with a whole new mindset about how we spend money and where we allocate it. When you embarked upon your essay, did you have any idea the system was so cracked? Uh, yes, I had a, a pretty uh, accurate idea about the extent of the catastrophe from my years working in criminal law and criminal legislative reform, where you know we were routinely seeing every day huge numbers of people ending up in the criminal justice system for want of earlier therapeutic care, treatment, and support. So kind of this egregious problem as it manifested in that punitive response had already been part of my kind of working life for uh, about, well, it goes back to law school that I first became aware of that, so about 20 years of thinking about that and wondering how we had absolved ourselves caring about this public institution that we had run into the ground. Well, one of the things I found most uh, interesting, uh, many aspects actually of your essay are fascinating, but it's the historical context in which, which you provide us. And you remind us that first European settlers to Australia were, of course, convicts or army folk, or perhaps there were one or two opportunists keen to make a fortune, and they themselves had little regard for, fellow, for their fellow man. But in this environment of this white penal settlement, there was a lot of mental anguish, anguish from having spent six months on a boat, anguish from being transported to the other side of the world, anguish because of the violence of the place. And also, as you say, many of the people who were transported actually were suffering mental illness, which is how they got into trouble with the law in the first place. Tell me about tell me about discovering that history and 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 what you kind of took home from that. Yeah, so I like well, just taking like one step back before I answer it. I think it it had struck. I've been here since 1994 in Australia, and I remember one of the things that I found amusing was this answer when you know people were having a particularly crappy day, and the answer I go would be oh pretty winner, and I thought. Oh, that's, you know, some amusement about that. But, you know, when you scratch the surface of this need to present, you know, a particular persona and kind of a, a fear of being perceived as, you know, we talk about tall poppies, but it's the fear of being perceived as the short poppy, where that comes from. And, you know, the way in which we kind of deploy history in the culture, generally political discourse specifically, it's also interesting because there is a, you know, quickness to connect these very sunny characterizations of good aspects of the collective character with the historical experience of founding Australia as a nation. What has been endured, you know, what we've conquered, all this this kind of rhetoric. But in terms of our darker aspects of character, the violence and kind of the repetition of quite dysfunctional patterns in our public life, a real uh, hesitation to do that same kind of historical perspective work. So when you think about, and this is an idea that kind of was bouncing around in my head, I, 
interviewed Peter Sherry at Sydney Writers Festival well, this time last year. And uh, he, we were talking about True History, Kelly Gang, uh, which is one of my favorite books, and that, that voice that he kind of captured slash invented for Ned Kelly, um, and indeed all the characters. And it seems like some sort of strange magic or ventriloquism or impersonation, and I asked him where that voice came from, and he said, Back as Marsh Public School in the 40s and 50s, that was the language of the teachers in the playgrounds. And these generations of Bush Rangers and Ned Kelly specifically are not that far removed from how I grew up and where I grew up. And these kind of founding generations of the nation are not that far removed. History is not, you know, past, and it's very much a living history. We know that from the you know, continuing injustices of colonization, and it's a very live, current uh, proposition. And so, could we have learned anything in those founding years of trying to set up the colony at the edge of the known world, uh, a penal colony that was, yes, open air, but nonetheless had a lot of those characteristics of closed, partial environments where it's showing weakness and strength? And what have we learned? successive generations about uh, anything that could be perceived as instability or unreliability or over-dependency, and uh, is the solution kind of closer than we think? Well, and it's the whole idea of locking them up too. A fear of the other, which uh, resonates, I think, or will resonate as this current federal election campaign unfolds. I was re- I was amazed. One example you use is the Arabend Asylum here in Melbourne. You said in 1855 there were 251 inmates, and just three years later it was double that, 450, which is just I find absolutely extraordinary. A community not able to deal with its vulnerable. I think the kind of the repetition of that dysfunctional pattern, you know, it doesn't work, and so we do it again, harder and more, instead of kind of stripping back the problem and asking, you know, why isn't this working? And I think, you know, I use in the essay this framework of group psychology, which is applying all the lessons we know about our personal psychology and relational psychology to our collective behaviors and political patterns. Uh, That's not new. We have 100 years of psychoanalysis and psychology specifically looking at that also belongs to the sociology. And, you know, we can see that this fear of the other starts with what we are taught to revile in ourselves. And it manifests in what we choose to see and unsee in our personal lives, in our relational life, in our collective behaviors, the uses of fear and moral panic, and how it translates ultimately what the lens that I looked through was stigma and how out of sight, out of mind, a punitive response when we're confronted with vulnerability and the very small violences of uh, the way in which we speak about people who are in need of help, whether it's for mental health reasons or, you know, refugee reasons or any other grounds on which people have been socially marginalized, we do have a knee-jerk punitive response. So where does that come from? You present us with a couple of uh, extraordinary and sad case studies, which I'll talk about in a second. But just on that fear of the other, it reminds me of, of one of your interviewees, Dr. Danny Sutherland at Thomas Embling Hospital. 
And he said to you, for thousands of years, people with mental illness have been regarded as different, whether it's been posed by the gods or cursed, afflicted by an illness, afflicted by genetic infirmities. Various narratives have always othered that population. And reading your very sad case studies, there's Rebecca who had the terrible moment in her life when she was in solitary confinement for so many months. And Eliza, of course, the young woman who you meet who's now working at Berry Street but had such a shattered teenagehood and childhood. It is quite extraordinary that even as, even when they're children, there's a sense of locking these people away because we don't understand them. Is it about, is it about control? Is this sense of other – what prompts us? Is it, is it power? I think, well, it's power, but it's kind of – it's fear. So, you know, we talk about – I don't use it poetically. I am using it psychologically, um, this notion of, you know, the Jungian shadow that we project onto others what we can't bear to look at in ourselves. And, you know, when we are refusing to enact recommendations of a royal commission or when we're cherry-picking from them or when we're politicizing things that shouldn't be politicized, perhaps this has something to do with the discomfort that we've learned over time about our own vulnerability and our own, you know, tenuous mental health, our own tenuous physical health. And so if we are, you know, and it's not something that happens consciously most of the time. So so often in, in, your, in your essay, we come back to the childhood experience, Sarah, whether it's with the, uh, the case studies themselves telling you or whether it's the professionals through years and years of professional observation that the trigger for what happens, it's it, childhood, the childhood experience is the trigger for what happens over the next few years. And Joseph Lee tells you, just imagine you are four years old walking on a subway platform with your mum, you're holding hands, it's crowded, it's teeming with people all around. The subway car pulls away. There's a huge rush of people and your mum loses contact with your hand. And then in the next moment, the train begins to pull away and you see that your mum is on the subway. It's pulling out of the station. Imagine how that feels. Well, that is very compelling, isn't it? It's really... What was your response when you heard that description? Oh, just pain. I think, you know, we can all kind of summon up this extreme, you know, pain and fear of uh, being left alone. And that was specifically about the kind of lived experience of many people with a borderline personality diagnosis in contradistinction to the stigma that operates even in the therapeutic clinical environments that they are immoral or manipulative or bad rather than mad, which is what we were taught in law school for the purposes of sentencing mitigation, bad, not mad, when this is a cohort, sizable cohort of the population that is, you know, badness or madness isn't the point, they're unwell. Uh, and that's a diagnosis that can be as disabling as intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorders and kind of the stigma that used to swarm on HIV or schizophrenia or bipolar has now seemed to settle on BPD. So it was a way of kind of getting into what was up, what was happening with this, with this stigma in, in society and in certain um, psychiatric environments in relation to that particular diagnosis. But it's also instructive because it raises in a really kind of clear way the damage caused by these unaddressed patterns of the past in the present, where without kind of treatment and care and support, 
therapeutically and relationally, we're left with a sort of DIY approach to our mental health, and it doesn't work. We know that you know, there are up to 1 million people in Australia in need of clinical care who are receiving no clinical care because of the stigma or because of accessibility issues. And it just, you know, it doesn't make the problem better looking the other way or not getting that help. It makes it worse. And so how could it present that kind of damage of the past and the present? How does it manifest specifically in borderline patients? How does it manifest specifically in our social kind of electoral patterns and our voting patterns? And how is it manifested in this problem more generally in society of not dealing with what we need to deal with? You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. You mention a whole lot of royal commissions, and although you don't say it, I'm wondering whether you arrive at, at, at a place where you think, what were all these com- royal commissions all about? Aboriginal deaths in custody in 1991. Since then, of course, been more than 500 Aboriginal deaths in custody. Victorian government's own royal commission into the mental health system, the, com- the royal commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse, where have you landed, the one more recently into aged care, where have you landed with, with all of this? Is it totally, are you totally despairing that a Royal Commission is not the way? Because I do think sometimes people think, voters think, oh, the government's doing something. They're having a Royal Commission. We'll have a commission on it and she'll be right. Well, there was a really useful line that I quote from Mental Health Victoria's last budget report. And this was for, from 2021, not the most recent one, saying that you know, there are few areas of government activity as formally examined as mental health care. And it really struck me because you know I have statistics in there about just the sheer volume of public inquiries that have been funded and you know have come up with perfectly reasonable you know roadmaps, and then have fallen by the wayside at least since the first national mental health plan in the early 90s. And so that starts to look like, you know, I read about a Freud's repetition compulsion, where we kind of act out the pathology. We're not going to talk about it, but we're going to show it. And so it's like, here's the solution. The problem isn't a lack of empirical data. The problem isn't that we don't know it. The problem is a lack of a will to change. And as far as kind of the Royal Commissions are concerned, there's nothing inherently wrong with the Royal Commission itself. It's, you know, the choices that we keep on making to politicize the independent findings of expert. And, you know, what that says about our desire to have things present in idealized ways, an idealized version of who we are as a nation, who we are collectively. We value those optics over operationalizing what needs to happen in order to actually make that image the reality. Well, at the end of your essay, I've left, I'm left with the conclusion that it's up to the community, it's up to us to help ourselves and to help the ones who have fallen through the gaps, to help the vulnerable and to really push on government how the money should be spent. Eliza, the young woman that you meet at Berry Street, who's had this um, most terrible background of sexual abuse and all sorts of terrible things have happened. She was a child. She's coming through the other other end, we imagine. She has a, she has fantastic discussions with you. But she says you can't heal in the environment that made you sick. And that's just, uh, for me, one of the most powerful parts of your essay. Can you talk to that? Yeah, I mean, that's everything. Really. That line is the point of the essay. Uh, and she is a remarkable young woman. And she is literally an outlier, as I write, because we know that uh, young people with her background experience, um, family violence in the home, and coercive control amongst her caretakers, 
and exclusion, expulsion from school in grade eight, uh, sexual abuse, and huge disappointing experiences of needing acute care and having to wait way too long to receive it as a young person in distress. We know that all of those factors coalesce and they're prominent in all of, most of the young people who are currently on remand for offending, in Victoria at least, and they are also contributing to the reasons why borderline personality disorder has a 44-time greater risk of suicide than other diagnoses. So to sit down and listen to her, as a lived experience consultant who advises services and sectors, as a user of the system, what needs to improve? She's, you know, the guy in the tools who can tell you what's not working on the factory floor. Um, she was profound in all respects. So this notion that, you know, we can't heal in the environment that's making us sick extends to belief that, yeah, yes, services and sectors do need greater coordination and vastly vast increase in funding but we can't just tinker at that end even you know make deep-seated reforms at that end and expect that that's going to fix the mental health crisis in australia we have so much evidence about how marginal health the risks of mental illness and its impacts are compounded for already marginalized groups and so unless we address those social determinants of health and well-being at the other end, we're going to have a constant oversupply of people who are either genetically unwell, some biological factors, and the social environment has made it worse, or the social environment has is responsible for their mental illness in the first place. So we need to address everything at the, the other end. We can't just, you know, fund services and think that's the end of the story. So the environment is still making us sick, and we know marginalization is presenting. We're going to see it in the next six weeks. Hello? We're going to see it in what counts as news, what's being treated as being worthy of entering the marketplace of ideas, what, um, you know, the daily language, <laughs> seeing it across so many other things. Also, I think the last point here is that it doesn't just exist in this sterile realm referred to as public health. It's housing. It's education. Is parenting support, it's gender pay gap, it is all of these things that mean that, you know, emotional regulation and literacy in the home is not the default setting, and that we are constantly contributing to and exacerbating the conditions that cause mental illness in the population. Sarah, you have enormous empathy for your subjects, and you briefly refer to your own time a few years ago when you were vulnerable, when you were experiencing anxiety and depression. Can you tease that out for me? Yeah, sure. I um, was speaking about this with Chrissy uh, the other day at Avid Reader, and she had said, we'd like to see more about your story. And I referred to another beautiful uh, book at the moment that I'm just very powerful material. It's called Found Wanting by Natasha Shull. And Natasha said the other day, I forget the context, but it was on the difference of, between therapy and art or writing. And so the bits of my story that I share are from the museum of my life, things that I have worked through, things from the zoo that are going to come out and rip your face off. So those things are all, all to come. But what I have drawn on here is my experience as a young person, as an adolescent, and then you know my entire 20s of having severe anxiety, depression, and panic, which, you know, again, I have first-hand experience of how 
that stigma operates in educational environments and work environments and social environments. I first go at writing this was as my law masters, where I wanted to look at these kind of that gap in the context of you know the narratives of around mateship versus the reality of border protection and asylum seeker detention. So I was unable to finish that master's because my mental health was so appalling. I would leave the house and get to the library. And this was uh, very early 2000s when we didn't have the rich online holdings that we do today. So I didn't get the chance to finish that master's. And this was in Australia? Yes. Yeah. So where, where were you born? I was born in Virginia, in Australia, and I moved here when I was 14. So I did high school. So moving country at that age is not easy. It was not easy, although I still have many of the friends that I made that first year. Yeah, no, I mean, all of the experience kind of just goes into the, the writing, not immediately. Yeah, so that those bits of sharing my own story and everything I write, I have done that. Firstly, I write often in first person, and it's susceptible to criticisms of uh, narcissism and why are you making this story about you and all the rest, as though... As I would say, the most narcissistic isn't the all-seeing eye of God, third-person point of view. I like the first person because I can ethically make clear to the reader that even in the realm of factual writing, we're always making subjective choices about inclusion and exclusion. We're only seeing what we can see through our own eyes, and I like reminding the readers. Well, I, I like it because it reminds me so much of Helen Garner, and I know that comparison has been awarded to you before, but. When I was a, a younger journalist at The Age in the 1980s, early 80s, Helen Garner was brought on as, as a journalist at large, I think was her title. And she was encouraged to write these big, long pieces, which she'd never done before. And she found it quite difficult to be the detached observer. So she found that inserting herself into the, into the narrative, asking questions, what would I do here? What were her, and exploring her responses, actually, Created an incredible connection immediately with the readers. So when you're dealing with otherwise kind of alienating material, maybe the reader's not going to see themselves in the people you are focusing on, but they might see themselves in you focusing on the people, and so you're going to get there in the end. So yeah, no, I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and, I, and as the reader, I think we we trust you. We we trust the narrator who is exposing themselves in many ways. Exposing you're exposing yourself to what might be our you know, responses, our, well, if, if we act the way we have over the past 200 years, you know, we would be marginalising you. We would be saying, oh, well, Sarah's part of the other. That doesn't apply to us. And then what does that actually mean? Do we kind of feel more powerful by that? Do we feel better? I, I just, I, I cannot understand a community that doesn't look to its vulnerable and bring them along on life's journey. And the other thing I'll never understand, Sarah, is with healthcare in an affluent society like Australia, why are people who have mental illness not given care that, is, that, it, that ranges through a period of time, that it's not one department and then another worker and then another and another and another, and sometimes someone's lucky because they have a caring teacher or a wonderful nurse or an amazing psychiatrist, but too often it's the same case is being handed over and over and over again and, and the person's needs and individuality is completely lost. Yeah, I mean, in, in kind of terms of the increasing atomization that's happening, you know, well before we were social distancing, 
one of the lines from the essay is that some things are just, you know, we're always looking for scalability. We're always looking to increase efficiency, but certain things require human scale, time, uh, you know, contact consistency over time. And, you know, psychology is one of those things. Talking therapy is one of those things. Education is one of those things. And, you know, we're losing that. So the Premier Daniel, the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has said, we said last year, we are rebuilding our mental health system from the ground up. I'm not sure how that project's going, Daniel, but what do you think needs to be done? And is there a, is there a country in the world that you think is actually doing this well? Well, I think that the funding is definitely in place for the first kind of tranche of the Royal Commission reforms, which is a 10-year reform agenda. So, you know, by really kind of a lot of stick to this government has kind of managed to secure the requisite funding and did those a public commitment to implement those recommendations in full that can proceed as it started. I think we will be a world leader in provision of mental health care, but I'm not that optimistic because 10 years involves many changes of government and the further out we become, we come we become from kind of the Royal Commission testimony and the powerful stories that are shared by so many people, the easier they get subsumed into the forgetting of, of history that we're so good at collectively. And, you know, the final chapter of the essay, I talk about the debates over implementing the levy that was recommended by the Royal Commission as absolutely essential to reform, the speed with which that levy was politicized, the sources of opposition, um, politically and uh, commercially, and how what it, what it says uh, about the sustainability of actually implementing this project. So I'm not hopeful that we we've, we've got there yet, but I think this is the best it's ever been. We have a language for talking about how mental health is connected to all other aspects of society. We know that that is while it's radical to a Western governance framework, it's indigenous knowledge and is owned and crafted by the most resilient culture, human culture on earth. And this notion that you can't separate out health from, you know, kin and family and spirituality and land and waters, we know because we've had that and we've been told that by Aboriginal controlled community health organizations for uh, decades now. So I think that this is the most willing we've been to listen whether we find the political and economic will to actually implement it is an entirely different story. Well, I think the timing of your essay is incredibly uh, fortuitous because I'm hoping that the extraordinary publicity that surrounds the quarterly essay, you've got a great gang there who work on your behalf, but that we're going to hear a lot of this over the next few weeks as the election campaign unfolds because it has to be absolutely at the forefront of all of our discussions in relation to, to healthcare. And Sarah, was it difficult? The last question is: Was it difficult to write the essay? Yes, it was like pulling teeth. I mean, to quote another, God forbid, I shouldn't mention Helen as well. Yeah, every time she says, every time it's like digging a hole in cement. And yes, I mean, it's uh, the what do they say? It's the longest short form, the quarterly essay, which I love, and I've used the maximum number of words that one is given, uh, forty thousand words. But uh, you have to write to, I'd say it's an academic standard, but without the safety of footnotes. And, you know, I've tried to abuse the endnotes as much as I could get away with. And, you know, you don't get a lot of room there. So you have to take the broadest possible view of the subject. And I, the particular brain that I have, 
struggles with that. I see mostly on my detail. So, you know, kind of switching perspectives to take that broader view and to back yourself despite all the, but, but what about this? What about that? That you can't kind of stick in the footnotes. I found that very scary. Uh, it's an entirely new audience for me, which is also very scary. Publishing is scary, particularly if you're like a thoroughly writerly personality. Speaking, podcasts are scary. Well, it, well, if it makes you feel any better, Laura Tingle, I interviewed her for the book pod a couple of years ago. She had written a quarterly essay, and like you, she would rather go down a coal mine with no lights, I think, than do a quarterly essay. But she, she did feel that it was probably easier in a way to write a book because, like all essays, you have to have it has to have the structure of an essay and you have to be arguing something. But, Sarah, I think with regard to footnotes and so on, when you have done so much research, as clearly you have, the, the knowledge and the, the knowledge comes to the fore, and it does in this. I feel very comfortable. I'm on terra firma with you because you've done the research and you've given us some amazing case studies and some incredible talent within the health profession as well, and and also some suggestions about way forward, which is great. So, well done, you. Oh, that's very lovely. Thank you. Because you know you just live in doubt for the entire period of the writing as you do with everything you write so that's very lovely to hear thank you well you're, you're, you are a major talent on our literary landscape here in Australia and we're so glad that you decided all those years ago to come over here because the trauma cleaner and of course this the quarterly essay and all your other work and your appearances and your public speaking really add to the discussion so thank you very much congratulations Sarah this this current quarterly essay, Not Waving, Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia by Sarah Krasnostein, our guest today on the book pod. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Corey. Thank you so much for your lovely question.